We're going through uh, church history class with the young people during Sunday school hour. And we went through, uh, just gave them some dates and some things that have transpired from the day of Pentecost up until uh, the 16th century, up, you know, through the beginning of the 16th century. A lot, a lot really happened. It's been very, very uh, interesting to think through some of the, the people and events and circumstances that happened. And I have grown to appreciate the fact that God waited until the 20th century to allow me to be born and to live and into the 21st century. Being a Christian for most of history from the day of Pentecost up until about the 17th, 18th centuries was not a fun thing. Thousands, millions of believers paid for their faith with their very lives, especially in Europe, in the Middle East. Think about what it's like today. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm grateful to be a Christian in 21st century America. Think about what it's like to be a Christian in other parts of the world today. South America, the Philippines, Indonesia. Indonesia has the largest population of Muslims in the world. Do you think the Christians and the Muslims get along there? Or India, or Pakistan, or Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, even in Israel, It's not easy being a Christian. The only thing, the only thing that enables people, that enables believers to function, to survive, and in some cases thrive, is the working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people, of people that God has saved. Last week, I talked about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And I, and I want to be clear about this. I, I emphasized the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural placement of the believer into the body of Christ, into the church. At the time of salvation, the very moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are baptized by the Spirit, into the body of Christ. Now, I emphasize that, that 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 is true of every single person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. No exception. Someone asked me about this, or asked about this last week, and I thought, it's a good question. What about water baptism? What about the importance of water baptism? Let me say this as as clearly as I possibly can, under normal circumstances, water baptism by single immersion is absolutely essential for a believer to be obedient. I say normal because sometimes not everybody can be baptized. If a person is on their deathbed, 
If a person has, has trusted Christ but is on their deathbed and is totally incapable of getting out of bed to be baptized, that, that is perfectly understandable. That person, that person is unable to do it. If a person is just about at the end of their life, but under normal circumstances, water baptism is absolutely essential. And some of the passages we talked about, I think, lend credence to the ordinance of water baptism. So I, I don't want to diminish water baptism at all. I, I believe in it. All right? I want to be clear about that. But we need to move on and talk about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, I say here, or we say here at the doctrinal statement, we believe the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to every believer. No exceptions. Everyone is to serve in the body of Christ. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. So that, or in order that, for the, in order for the church to properly function, he gives these gifts for the common good, and they are God-given abilities that Christians should employ to serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The spiritual gifts include, but are not limited to, administration, giving, helps, pastor-teacher, mercy, hospitality, prayer, and other skills, talents, and abilities. God used some spiritual gifts. Now here's where... Now here's where a lot of people have a problem. Let me say this, I don't. <laughs> I embrace this. God used some spiritual gifts such as apostleship, miracles, tongues, healing, prophecy, knowledge, etc., which were temporary in nature as signs to unbelieving Jews and to confirm the New Testament message and its messengers to the church. The sign gifts or revelatory gifts, gifts given by God to reveal his word and will to mankind, legitimately function until the completion of the canon of Scripture, ceasing by the end of the first century. Let me say this, spiritual gifts are essential to the church. If without them, the church would not, could not function and in reality, without spiritual gifts, the church would not be the church. We might also suggest that as God intends it, we would not exist without the endued gifts the Holy Spirit gives. Why do we say that? Because the church is a spiritual entity. The church is not an organization. We're not a business. We're not a company. We're not a corporation. The church, as we said last week, is the body of Christ. That's what happens when you, your finger hits the wrong button. <laughs> the church is Christ's body. You know what that means? The church is unlike anything on this earth today. There's nothing like the church in our culture. There's nothing like the church in the world. The church is unique. I love the book of Ephesians, especially the first chapter. It talks about the working of God in the life of a person. And throughout that, 
you, you run across this statement repeatedly throughout that first chapter, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And you get over to chapter 3 where he's talked about the church, and, and he refers to the, the church being to the praise and glory of God. So many people today want to try to model church bodies in doctrine and practice and conform them or mimic in important ways the world. That's not what the church is about. That's not what the church is supposed to do. God has given us all that the church needs to function, and not just to, to survive, but to accomplish his will and his purpose in this world. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. This is a passage we'll refer to a couple of times. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, it says, And he that is Christ, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why did he give those? What, what was the purpose of him giving these gifts? For the perfecting of the saints, for the maturing of the saints, for the for bringing the saints to completion, maturity, so that the saints could do the work of the ministry, so that the saints could go. This is what we said. This is what we believe at Grace Bible Church. You come here. We gather together to be trained, to be equipped, to be edified, to go out into the world to minister as saints, as believers to a lost and dying world. For the for for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, for the building up of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, a mature man, a complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And verse 14 says that we henceforth be no more children, that we be no more infants, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Are there deceivers in this world today? Are there cunning people in this world today? <laughs> I caught the tail end of the Sunday school hour. I was out in the hallway there. I caught the tail end of what Pastor Matt was talking about from the book of Jude, one of, one of the most important books in all the New Testament, written by the end, at, toward the end of the first century, warning believers. Certain men have come in, crept in, unawares. Cunning men, deceiving men. I, I know... In my heart, I take, the, I take the charge of being a pastor very seriously. One of the charges given is to provide instruction in what the text of Scripture says. We're to preach the Word, be instant, in season, out of season, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
Secondly, a pastor is to lead the congregation, lead by example, by living a godly life. Follow me. We talked about this yesterday in the men's Bible study, which I really appreciated very much uh, from Philippians chapter 2. Follow me, Paul says to the Philippian believers and to other believers. Follow me as I go out and live however I want. No, follow me as I follow Christ. When I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. Avoid me. But when I follow Christ, you follow me. Because we're both following Christ. And Christ is the example. There's a third charge that a pastor is to to give. And that's to warn people. To warn believers of danger. Dangers that can be seen and dangers that can be unseen that might be around the corner. That's probably the most difficult, most frustrating thing a pastor has to do. Because because people don't like it. It's negative. It requires not only exposing the false teachers, but the false teaching as well. It also means not just unbelievers, but sometimes believers themselves can be used to teach false doctrine. And we have to warn against that. So I said we understand that the church is not simply about redeeming sinners. The church is to make God, the plan and program of God, the focus. In order to do that, we have to use the gifts that God has given us. We have to use those gifts. We can't rely on human intellect. I love the statement in Matthew 16, Jesus' Jesus' statement to the disciples, I will build my church. We talked about this in the Sunday school class a a couple of weeks ago. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whose church is it? My church, Jesus said. Who's doing the building? Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As I said, we're we're not just here to see sinners saved. We're here to see people grow and mature, like it says in Ephesians chapter 4, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I believe that one of the most serious doctrinal errors to creep into the church in the last 150, 200 years has been the modern charis- what's become the charismatic movement. It seems to have crept in unawares. It seems that people have become ambivalent about it. It seems that people don't take it seriously, don't take the error seriously anymore. You know, it was interesting... I'm from Topeka, Kansas, and many people regard the birth or or, uh, some of the beginning of the Pentecostal movement as having happened in Topeka, Kansas in the early 20th century. And then it came out here to California, to Azusa, down in Los Angeles or the Los Angeles area, 
and it spread all over the world. And for, for about 50 years, it was confined to just a few aberrant organizations and denominations. But in 1960, it just exploded because of an Episcopalian down in, Los, in the Los Angeles area who had the experience. And it's just permeated everything today. I believe that that is one of the biggest deceptions that we face as a as a body as the body of Christ and as a local church. It's one of it's one of the most dangerous things that we face. I don't believe I don't believe that the miraculous gifts continued past the 1st century. I believe they they stopped when, when the apostles went off the scene, that ended it. And when you see, when you see the book, in the book of Revelation, when you see John penning the closing uh, statements of the book of Revelation, that ends the, the gift of prophecy right there. There is nothing, there's no more. What about the sign gifts today? I, I believe this. They existed. They, they did. You, you read the New Testament. You read about people being healed, lame, lame people walking, blind people receiving their sight, deaf people hearing. You, you read about verifiable miracles taking place. But when they did, they, they were really rare. Even in Jesus' day, they were rare. You know, it's interesting to me that in in the Gospels especially, when Jesus healed people, He did it individually. He didn't just a a crowd of, of people, needy people gather around Him and He just step back and utter some words and say, poof, everybody is healed. He didn't do that. If you, if, if a person was healed, they had to get to Jesus. Otherwise, why, why would four friends of a lame man tear a roof off a house and lower the guy down? I mean, that, that's one of the, that, that story always makes me smile. But I think here are some desperate guys trying to get their friend healed and they will stop at nothing. And they do it. And, and the man's healed. Jesus heals it. Those, those were real, bona fide miracles. Miracles did happen. But they had restrictions. They had a, spe- a specific purpose. We'll talk about that. They, they, they seem to have been limited in impact. We'll talk about that. As to the number of people they actually influenced and the nature of their manifestation and the actual time they existed. It's interesting, there was a man by the name of John Chrysostom who lived in the 4th century. I found this. He, he talks about uh, spiritual gifts. And that's what he said. This is what he says about the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He says, this whole place, this whole passage is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation. See that? What he's saying is he understood 
in the fourth century, those gifts had long ago ceased. They didn't exist even in his day. He recognized that. But yet all through church history, you find people claiming to have visions and dreams and do, having, doing signs and wonders and doing miracles. But he recognized, no, that's not happening. Those things stopped. Being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. And why do they not happen now? Why, not, why look now? The cause to the, uh, of the obscurity has produced us again another question, namely, why did they happen then? Or why did they then happen and now do so no more? Why did they happen then and not now? And I, I believe we'll, we'll answer that in a minute. We'll talk about that. There are three questions to answer. What are the sign gifts? You know, it's important. If you're going to talk about something, you better define it. You better define what you mean by the sign gifts. So I want you to open your, or turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, mainly chapter 13. But I want to look at chapter 12 first. And I want to kind of, I want to set the context for this a little bit. In chapter 12, we, we talked a little bit about this last week. In chapter 12, he says, helps if you're in 1 Corinthians, not Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, he starts this off, this whole section, now concerning. See, what he's doing is now he's going to talk about something specific. Now he's going to talk about something that he hasn't been talking about before. Now he's going to talk about a subject now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. I would not have you uninformed. I would not have you unintelligent about this. I want you to know about this. I want you to understand this. Notice what he says. Ye know that ye were Gentiles. Whoa, wait a minute. Who are Gentiles? Here's Paul, a Jew, writing to a church at Corinth, and he refers to them as Gentiles. In, in, in Paul's mind, Gentiles were what? Worshippers of the true and living God? Or pagans? Pagans. So he says, ye were Gentiles. You're not anymore, but you were at that time. You were Gentiles, Carried away unto these, I love this, dumb idols. You were idol worshipers. And he emphasizes, he emphasizes this, dumb idols. What does it mean that, they were a, that this was a dumb idol? It couldn't speak. Had no ability to bestow anything on anyone. And he's talking about spiritual gifts. These idols have no ability to give anything. And he says, even as ye were led. This is what you did. This is what you practiced. Wherefore, I give you to understand, no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. 
And no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Apparently, some believers, some professing believers were saying Jesus is accursed. And Paul says, if they're saying that, it's not by the Spirit of God. Well, if they don't have the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God isn't doing that, they're false teachers. What Paul is saying here, what Paul is trying to do is this. What, what was the whole function of Gentile pagan idol worship? It was all on the external. It was all on the temporary. It was all on the superficial. And Paul is trying to get their attention, get their focus off of that and get it into the internal said, because you've received the Spirit, and the Spirit has been working in you, and the Spirit has placed you into this body of Christ. And we talked about this, the next part last week, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, diversities of administration, but the same Lord, the diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. See, Spirit, Lord, God, Father, or uh, Son, Spirit, Father, the Trinity. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. These things, these things are not given just to keep to yourself. These gifts are not given just to keep to yourself. This is to be a benefit to everybody in the body. It's what we said in the doctrinal statement. What we said there, it's, it's to profit the entire congregation. Your gift is given to use to, to build up the body of believers. To one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another working of miracles. These are all supernatural. These are all, these are all sign gifts. To another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But these all worketh, but, but all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally, individually, as He, the Spirit, wills. As the Spirit determines, He gives these gifts. Wonderful to have these supernatural gifts. And, he, and He's going on through the rest of the chapter and talking about them. We'll go down to verse 31, and I want you to notice this statement. But covet earnestly, sincerely, fervently, the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. He's talked about supernatural gifts, but he says there's something better. There's something more important. There's something more significant than these tremendous sign gifts. And it's a more excellent way. It's a better way. 
What comes after chapter 12, verse 31? Chapter 13. Here's the more excellent way. What's chapter 13 all about? Love. You mean love is better than than these tremendous, powerful sign gifts? Infinitely, eternally better. It's superior. These, in comparison to love, these sign gifts are nothing. These sign gifts are useless. That's what he says. If, if I have the gift of tongues, verse 1, and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. When I was in, I think, junior high, we'd walk past the band room in the junior high, sorry, middle school. <laughs> walk past the band room, and you'd hear the percussion practicing, and you'd hear this clang, 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 and I thought, man, I could play that. The cymbals just clapping together. I could, you know, that, that would have made my mom and dad so happy to be practicing that at home every night. I'd, I'd have been my dad's favorite, you know, my, instead of my sister, I'd have been his favorite. My sister played the clarinet. Know what that's like, listening to someone play a clarinet every night? She's on notes, and then, and then she hits this sound, squeaks, and ah! A tinkling symbol without love. This great gift. It's useless. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and see that word mystery is not some mystical thing, it's revelation, special revelation. Though I have the gift of prophecy and I'm given all this tremendous revelation, previously uh, unrevealed information, though I have this, and I have all knowledge, though I have all faith, that I could move mountains without charity. I'm nothing. Nothing. Though I'm a great giver, I, I give everything I have to feed the poor. I give my body to be burned. I have not charity. It profits nothing. And then this is typically read at weddings. And I think for good reason. Charity suffereth long. (laughs) It endures long. Charity is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. See that charity rejoices in truth. Not feeling, not experience, but truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. You see that? Charity never faileth. I mean, he, he's very clear about that. It never, it, it never stops. But, he says, whether there be prophecies, 
they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge are temporary. They're temporary. They don't last. By the way, just so you know, tongues were a supernatural ability to speak in a language that the speaker has not learned. It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't nonsense. They were languages. They were human languages. I watched a video the other day of a former Southern Baptist youth pastor who's now a charismatic, and he's discovered the secret to teach people to speak in tongues. He's very engaging. He's very entertaining. I mean, it's, it's really kind of fun to watch it. But you just sit there and shake your head and think, this, this is not of God. This is not what tongues were. They were languages. And, and they, were foreign, they were foreign to the tongue that the person spoke. I mean, read Acts chapter 2. Whether there be prophecies. What, what are prophecies? They were divinely, they, it was a message divinely given to communicate God's mind to an audience. I have heard some of the most outlandish predictions by professing prophets today that never, ever, ever come true. They don't even come close. Like this one. I heard this from a prophet last fall. The Oakland Raiders are going to make it to the Super Bowl in 2018. (laughs) I heard this one. The Denver Broncos are going to make it to the playoffs. (laughs) Seriously. I, I believe this, that the Old Testament, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, spelled out the qualifications for prophets. That never changed. That still held true into the New Testament era. Those prophet, those prophets, those prophets who, who existed in the early church had the same specifications, the same requirements, the same duties as the Old Testament prophets. It didn't change. It wasn't altered in any way. And knowledge is something is information that was given by the spirit not or it's not ordinary human knowledge it's something that that simple understanding and comprehension of truth d- doesn't you, you don't it doesn't qualify it's it's some, it Paul connects this now notice in verse 2 of chapter 13 he connects this knowledge with mysteries he says though i have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge see that Knowledge and mysteries are the same. What's what's a mystery? Something that had not been revealed before. So what Paul is saying here is this mystery, this knowledge is a mystery, is unrevealed truth that God is now revealing. 
what do prophecy, knowledge, and tongues have in common? They're all revelational. They're all, they're all revelational in that they're revealing information that God had not yet given, but now he's giving it. Look at verse 10. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What he's talking about is what is in part prophecy, knowledge, tongues. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What's the perfect? I, I know this is... I know all the arguments, all the explanations for supposing what the perfect is. I'm just going to give you the right one. You have it on your lap. It's the completed canon of Scripture. Say, how do I know that? What did I say? Prophecy, knowledge, and tongues are. What do they have in common? Revelation. That's what he says. We know in part, we prophesy in part, verse 9, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When the perfect comes, the partial is gone. And that's what he said earlier, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues all cease, all stop. And then he uses a couple of illustrations. In verse, verse 11, he uses the illustration of a child. And then in verse 12, he uses the illustration of a, uh, seeing in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Right now, I know in part. How, why does Paul say, I know in part? Because he doesn't have completed the completed canon of Scripture yet. But he says, when the, part, when the perfect comes then I will know even as I am known. Then I can be a mature man. That's what he's saying. Now abideth faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and charity, excuse me. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Why is charity the greatest? Why is charity greater than hope? Why is charity greater than faith? It's simply this. Faith and hope are not eternal. Really? Yes. Faith. We live by faith now. We walk by faith, not by sight. Hope isn't eternal. Faith and hope disappear. When? When Jesus comes. We, no longer, we will walk by, by sight. We no longer hope. Hope isn't necessary. But love is always necessary. That's why charity is the greatest. The signed gifts were simply revelational. What were they intended to accomplish? They were intended to build up the body of Christ in the New Testament church. All the gifts, the miraculous and the normal, were given for that purpose. They were intended to authenticate the ministry of God's spokesman. Miracles were not an end in and of themselves. I'm always I'm fascinated by this story in Luke 16. The rich man and Lazarus. 
The rich man dies. Lazarus dies. And the rich man goes to Hades. And he's there in torment. And he tells, he tell, he has this conversation with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, send Lazarus back. I mean, do this wonderful miracle of, of resurrecting a dead person. Send him back to warn my brothers. And what does Abraham tell him? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the revealed word of God. Let them hear them. Let them hear Moses and the prophets. And and he goes on and says, they won't believe even if one rise from the dead. Isn't that stunning? You mean a great, stupendous, tremendous, miraculous resurrection won't cause people to believe? Do you ever wonder why, why the Jews didn't just fall down and the Romans didn't just fall down when they opened that tomb and the tomb was empty on the third day, a day we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks. Why didn't they just fall down and worship at that point? Unbelief is a powerful, powerful enemy. You and I are privileged today to have the completed canon of Scripture. We have everything that God requires us to have. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, From a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God has given us everything we need to tell us how to live and how we, how we live to please Him. We don't need the experiences, the emotional highs, the, the ecstatic utterances. Why is this so important today? Because the charismatic movement, the modern charismatic movement, distorts the gospel, the simple gospel. I've had people tell me, I've had charismatics tell me, they teach this in their churches. In order to prove your salvation, You have to have some sort of experience. You have to speak in tongues. You have to give prophecy. You have to do some kind of miracle. I've had people tell me that. And they really believe it. It's nonsense. Absolute rubbish. It doesn't happen. It's not necessary. They've distorted the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died for you. Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. Jesus rose the third day. That is the simple gospel message. It show, the resurrection simply shows that God accepted that payment for your sins and mine. That's good news. It tears the heart out of the authority. The charismatic movement tears the heart and soul out of the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. We have what we need. 
It's, it's not easy. Is it, we, we talked about this yesterday in the, in the men's Bible study. You know, I, I, it wasn't easy for Timothy, for Paul, for Epaphroditus. And it certainly wasn't easy for Christ. Was it? Well, that's what the Bible says. You know, it's the greatest, to me, the greatest thing in the world is to be able to open God's Word and just read it and take it at face value and not have to depend on some experience or some ecstatic feeling. Feelings are fleeting, feelings are foolish, feelings are folly. How's that for alliteration? God's word is stable, steadfast, and secure. Trust it. That was pretty good too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to just look at these things in, in survey fashion. Thank you for the patience of your people. Help us to not just understand your word better, but to flesh it out in our lives, to live balanced biblical lives in these days and times, not based on our experiences or feelings, but based on the authority of your word, your revelation to us. Thank you that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the infallible, inerrant, inspired revelation that you entrusted to the apostles and that we can read it for ourselves in our own language today. What a privilege it is to know that your will is plain and your will is steadfast for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's ask Dave to come and lead us in our closing hymn.